Welcome, Dishheads. This is uh, another edition of the Dishcast. This time with another person I've known forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, uh, who happens to be, in my humble opinion, uh, the smartest, best right of center writer in America. Uh, both stimulating, provocative, smart, brilliant writer. His name is Christopher Caldwell. He is a contributor to the Claremont Review of Books. He's also venturing out. He's going to have a piece in the new next issue of the New Republic, believe it or not, finally allowing some air into their otherwise Stalinist pages. <laughs> uh, okay, couldn't resist that. Um, Christopher, welcome. Uh, well, and it's good to be here with you, Andrew. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, I should mention he wrote a recent book, which if you have not read, you should. It's called The Age of Entitlement. It's a rather devastating and very challenging account of the last 50 to 60 years in which Chris talks about two rival constitutions at war with each other in America. And it seems like a very propitious moment to talk about that since we now have a new administration, which seems to be very much in favor of one of those constitutions. Uh, Christopher, welcome. Let me ask you with a, a, a big question to start with, just because I, I want people to understand where you're coming from. You say American history really turned at a very critical moment in the early to mid-60s. And the two critical uh, manifestations of this were the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Immigration Act of 1965. And you argue that those two things can help us understand much better the crisis that we seem to be in today in terms of how we govern our country in its most fundamental sense. Can you explain why you think that's the case and in what way it is? Yeah, I, you know, I, I would say an interesting thing that came up as I studied the 60s, and I, and I had a you know, I went into this thinking I might write something about the the baby boom. I understood that the 60s was a turning point somehow. Uh, but I felt that 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 a sort of a an era had opened with the Kennedy assassination that had kind of closed with the with the with the financial crisis of 2008 and 9. Um I was trying to figure out what that was, I, and 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 the the first theory that I had that it was that it was something to do with um, with the economics of demographics, that it had to do with the the weight of the baby boom in the in society, that 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 you basically had this incredible period of uh, of of earning when you had a relatively giant percentage of people in the productive years of their lives. That is, there were relatively few children and there were relatively few old people. And so you just had a, a, a society that was kind of out of balance. I had the feeling that, that a parenthesis had kind of opened in the early 60s and was closing around 2010. But I really think that, you know, I, I, I do think the underlying demographic problems are key. But I think the I think that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a real opening, without anyone realizing it, was an opening of a se second sort of kind of American government. Um, 
and I should probably explain what I mean. You know, obviously there was a a, a quite serious problem with um, um, with racial inequality in the American South um, uh, with Jim Crow um, at the time. I'm I'm not sure that most Americans believed that the problem went beyond Jim Crow, but they were appalled by it. And in fact, a lot of the political will behind the Civil Rights Act, I think, came from the fact that about 80 or 90 percent of the country uh, just believed that they were voting to make these recalcitrant, backward yokels in a couple of southern states behave. They didn't quite, I, and, and although the the administration, although the, the the legislation as it was written, is very broad. I don't think that's what Americans thought they were passing. And so, what were they passing? Well, I think the problem with the South is that the uh, is that the that the, the, the states and towns and uh, uh, that 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 were mistreating black people were democracies. Now they were malfunctioning democracies. But in order to get at this problem of, um, of racial segregation and racial inequality, you had to say, okay, this democracy is not legitimate. We've got to go behind it. We don't have to assume that its out outcomes are, 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 are genuine or legitimate. Um, so the Civil Rights Act allowed, you know, um, uh, well, it allowed federal courts to try people um, uh, for, for civil rights violations in a way that was sort of uh, double jeopardy. It allowed the uh, federal government to cut off funding to, um, to schools. It was very, very strong medicine. And, and eventually it wound up just meaning you could overturn the democratic verdicts of those southern states. When you say overturn the democratic verdicts, I mean, this is also assuming those states also had voter suppression and poll tax, all sorts of ways to prevent African-Americans from having full uh, enfranchisement, right? But yeah. it seems to me that the, the book is arguing really that, you, that the basic compact of the American constitution, which is that there's a limited government after which you're on your own, guys, and exercise your freedom and your freedom of association within without some clearly historical monstrosities. Um, uh, and in order to find a way to argue for the full inclusion of African-Americans, they took a philosophical step that was different from that limited government. It required government to be in some cases much less limited than it used to be to address what I think you and I would both agree, and most Americans would agree now anyway, even they didn't at the time, was egregious discrimination by the state, by the actual uh, forms of government against African-Americans. Then, of course, it shifts towards the private sector. Right. And it also shifts from the unique experience of African-Americans in slavery and segregation and Jim Crow to everybody, uh, to every other group that could claim some kind of history of, quote-unquote, oppression. So the principle involved, which is no limited government has an exception because of historic injustice, could, do you think it could have been restricted and isolated with African-Americans? You, of course, do have, I think, this unique experience 
of persecution in the United States, unlike any other group that's ever been here, it seems to me. And I mean, there was a, at the time, you may remember this, the, 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 the person who most boldly criticized the Civil Rights Act of 64 was Robert Bork. Uh, he wrote a famous essay in The New Republic, yes. making the case that he could understand why this was being done, but the actual philosophical consequences of it were profound and would continue to reverberate in which everybody, every minority, every group that can claim oppression can jump into the same principle until we have much lower freedom of association, much lower freedom of contract, uh, much less actual freedom in order to enhance what appears to be the standing of these groups. And it seems to me that that was also combined with an immigration act which vastly increased uh, the number of non-white immigrants. And now I think it's somewhere in the region of 82 to 86% of our immigrants are non-white. Uh, put those two things together, you kind of have this almost uh, unstoppable force for the enfranchisement and civil rights of literally every possible form of oppression. And it has just, those groups have extended and extended and extended until we are now. Uh, we're no longer gay people. We're LGBTQ plus 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 IA two three two S and all the rest of it. So the, so there is almost no limiting principle on the duty of the government to make sure all its citizens are fully, as it understood, represented. Even if that means trampling on a lot of people's uh, right to associate, contract in the classical tradition. Uh, am I? Am I? Uh, is yeah, that a fair explanation of what you said? That's right. I, I, you know, I would say, um, you know, there's, there's almost no limiting principle. And this, you say that the, the laws cover everyone. They cover almost everyone because you're right. You, Americans, when they backed the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which they did, they backed it narrowly. Um, they believed it was going to take care of this one terrible um, historical problem. Uh, uh, More than a problem, surely, an absolute and awful thing. Right. More than a problem. I mean, a pretty Yes, well, they were, uh, this, this sort of, you can call it a national shame or, or, right. or, or whatever. To that extent, they were grateful for it. Um, I don't, but, but they also, because of the extent of the problem, because of the extent of the shame, um, they thought it was going to be limited to that. They did have a clear sense of the specialness of that relationship of the you know between Black Americans and White Americans. Um, they didn't think that it applied to, you know, um, sort of like straights and gays, or to or to male executives and female executives both working their way up the corporate ladder. Both of which, of course, you know, uh, are, are now the the heart and soul of, of civil rights litigation. But it spread. Um, but an interesting thing is there, there seems to have been a limit to where it could, could spread, okay? So it spread, um, you know, I would say first to other ethnic groups, um, you know, including, uh, however you, whatever you want to call an ethnic group, including Spanish speakers, you know. Um, it spread to women. It spread to gays. It's now spread to transgenders. But, it has not spread to heterosexual white men. And, but, and so the power of this constitution um, means that if you can lay hold of the, uh, if you can lay hold of the, of the power that resides in this constitution, 
you can overrule almost anyone in the society. But straight white men don't have access to it. And they feel that they feel that lack greatly. So through a kind of an irony that has has developed so slowly that no one's really noticed it, these laws which I think most people hoped would kind of de-ethnicized America have actually ethnicized people who never thought of themselves as belonging to a to a race or a or a sex or a or a sexual orientation, you know? Yes. Um, the argument against that is to say, well, you know, welcome to the club. We were all <laughs> African Americans would say, well, we were always treated this way. So uh, there's play, fair play, right? I mean, <laughs> if well, I, you I mean, get to be a, treated like that, a that's not a great selling point to say, you know, fifty years from now we'll all be treated the way African Americans are today, right? I mean, that was not right. really the pitch that was made with right. the legislation. I noticed that. Um, this week, uh, the Office of Personnel Management under the Biden administration leaked to Axios the fact that they were very proud that of all the political appointees that were coming in, they were 85% uh, women or people of color, that they had managed to whittle down the number of white men to 15% of the, of, the, of the people. And they were proud of this. This was, a, this was something they wanted to demonstrate. Is how much do you think is that philosophy responsible for the emergence of white identity politics, which seems to be now the 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 driving force of the Trump movement? I think that's the whole of it. I think I think that's the entirety of it. I don't think there's anyone sitting around sort of like um, you know longing for the 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 days of the the night riding clan of the 1920s. I think there are people who are sort of like you know, with a lot of a lot of stuff going on, like outsourcing and financial crises and things that are really like rocking people's lives, you know, like things that cause people to lose their their life savings, uh, give people the idea of, um, you know, of a, of, a, of a train leaving the station that they're not on. I mean, if you don't, if you don't have any money and you don't live near any place where you can get a job that will give you money and you don't have any prospect of sending your children to college. I mean, I think that people sort of like grasp for some way to control their lives, for some way to control the, uh, you know, the world around them. Traditionally in the United States, they, um, people have turned to the political system. People you know, uh, you know, if uh, the great thing about a democracy is that you can use it. And I think that a lot of people feel that they cannot get a handle on the most powerful part of the democracy because it's not for them. It's just not designed for them. It's not meant to serve them. And it's a very weird, it's a very strange thing to tell a large part of your, of, 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 of your, of your population. In what way? Uh... Working class white people not represented by the current administration, for example. Uh, in, in what way? Because I, I, Joe Biden no, would Joe Biden would say, yeah. no, 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 no. Uh, this is not a question. That, I'm not saying that they don't have a vote, and I'm not saying that Joe Biden's a nice guy. This is a different. This is a different type of argument. I, you know, uh, is it just you, the way they power, feel, or is it real? No, it's real. I think. Um, you know, although it's all happening very far away, 
And so if you're a rural person in a, a sort of like a, a blighted mill town in Ohio where there's big opi opioid problem, you know, the, the political system that we're talking about that works by, you know, through judicial decisions and sort of like bureaucratic rule writing and things, it's happening a long way away. It's not just that it's happening in, you know, in, 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 in Washington. It's happening in a different kind of society. So you're, you're distant from it. But so, so people don't have a clear sense of it, but that doesn't mean that it's unreal. And, and that's so, because, I mean, so, okay. But I, but I mean, you know, when we're talking about the, when, when we're talking about, you know, the, the, you know, why do people, people feel this way? It's not that Joe Biden is not a nice guy and it's not that people don't vote. It's just that there is this second, you, you know, it used to be that, 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 that to make laws in this country, to change the way American citizens were required to live, you had to go through the process of legislating in Congress. That was the only way you could do it. Now that is no longer the case. Or your local now, state house, you know, presumably. People bring their kids into schools and they're, you know, they're told there are these rules about what they're going to learn about sexuality and things like that. And no one voted for any of that. Do you know what I mean? So, 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 that's, so this that's, is also that's, that's the level at which I'm talking. And you're also talking about the way in which, as you understand it, the, the judicial branch essentially took on itself uh, the role of creating the rules of society in, in many ways, which was increasingly for a lot of people uh, a sense of disenfranchisement with uh, judicial power as opposed to local democratic power. Um, state legislatures. Um, this let me let me take a, my own personal experience here because it's it's kind of interesting and, and it, it might complicate this dichotomy that you have between mm -hmm. judicial laws. Public opinion also changes. Uh, democratic majorities emerge. People change their minds on certain questions over the years. Uh, and take something we've we've debated about in the past, which is marriage equality. Now, in the end. This was the courts intervened at the end in a way. I mean, if you, it, it, for some people, it might seem they did it at the beginning, but in fact, the arguments and process campaigning for this, the equality of gays and straights in marriage, it started a long time before the courts even began to look at it. There were a couple of very early cases. In other words, it was both. It was both uh, a democratic campaign persuading state legislatures uh, bit by bit to accommodate the needs of their constituencies or the arguments that we had. There were lots of debates across the country. I mean, I was, went on for 20 years debating this everywhere until mm -hmm. we did shift public opinion to majority. Now it's almost two thirds majority of support for it. Uh, I would personally, and you can look at the record, uh, argued that this should be done fundamentally through state legislatures because it was a state issue, marriage, mm -hmm. but that the argument could be successful and we could persuade people. And we did largely. And then the judicial branch came in, in a way. We, I mean, parts of the movement, I wasn't among them, but they were there. Uh, my view was that the pursued the judicial route. Uh, it's almost impossible now not to in these circumstances, right? I mean, people will bring suits. And, and the thing about something like marriage equality is it has a long constitutional history, which has to be accommodated. But what I'm saying is that essentially right now, 
What would be the difference? The majority of people support it. If they were to vote, they would probably vote it in, except in some states. Now, but then that would be confusing because people would then go from state to state. It would be a bit of a mess, but it could have been sustained indefinitely. So what I'm trying to say is that these issues are not quite as clear cut as you might seem, that, that, that also with, with African-Americans in civil rights or women's rights, that, that majorities have emerged supporting this as a democratic function rather than having it constantly just simply imposed by courts. Um, now, you know, Andrew, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying, what I'm saying is, is that there are two different systems at gov of government which are often incompatible. I am not saying that one of those systems of government has a monopoly on okay. desirable mm -hmm. policy outcomes, mm -hmm. all right? Um, but, but I think that gay marriage actually is a good example of the ability of the civil rights, of the, of the, uh, of the system of judicial and bureaucratic rule that draws its legitimacy from civil rights law to overrule the sort of like the votes of the of, of 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 the of the public you know and i you know once you have uh once you have gay marriage declared a constitutional principle by the supreme court it really becomes quite pointless to debate the pros and cons of it in um in um in in the congress you know what i mean yes so except you so, so it's not once the court decides, it's not like you can really legitimately say we would have won anyway. You know, if you if if you would have won anyway, then it would have been then. I mean, then you then then you can say that the the gay marriage side actually lost forever its chance to win. You know what I mean? Because I once you I, have, I understand that. Yeah. So right. So 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 once you have uh, and and once you have a system that gets voted in like that it creates a lot of other a lot of other distortions it yeah. becomes very hard to to have a um a climate of free opinion about it as well but that's another that's another situation yes i i take all those points and to be honest with you i would have preferred if we'd won it democratically uh, fully democratically as i think we would have um it, but it would have taken a little bit longer it would have required uh difficult conversations and harder conversations in some states than others but as a state-based right, uh, it had to be, you know, it should have been done that way. On the other hand, if, if say, abortion rights were up for the vote today, a democratic vote, I think most of the states would allow for some form of legal abortion. Uh, you could see Roe v. Wade essentially as a way that actually that, that kind of prevented the evolution of democratic majorities that might well have been m more permissive than the past. In fact, almost certainly would have been. Um, in favor of this rather extreme one standard for the entire country. On the other hand, with abortion, however, uh, public opinion hasn't moved much. It, it's still highly contentious, whereas on something like uh, homosexuality, it does seem to have shifted to a clear two-thirds majority in favor uh, of that. So it's, it, in some ways, I would think abortion is a slightly more troubling example of judicial overreach um, as opposed to the... Uh, now, one of the solutions to this within our own system, of course, is the judiciary itself will change and it will decide that its role is not to do this and will will withdraw from the political arena a little bit. And you must 
have some optimism given the extraordinary success of of the last administration in 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 filling the courts that that there is some pushback there uh for the future well i i don't know how optimistic or 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 pessimistic i am i certainly don't think uh, I don't think that the ideal situation is just to make your peace with this system and say, okay, well, now we're going to do our legislating through, you know, at one remove through the Supreme Court. We're going to elect, you know, basically the no, only No, but they would then, ref- then, they, they would the then withdraw election. from the democratic the, the legislative base. So it would bring back a more democratic process if they just simply do know. not intervene. Well, maybe, maybe if they didn't, if they withdraw, I don't, I'm not sure I really expect that to happen. In a funny way, I would say, you know, that we've moved back um, uh, to the world before the progressive amendments when, you know, that it used to be that, that the legislatures would elect the senators in, 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 um, and, and state legislatures would elect the senators. And so they were senators were sort of insulated in a way from um, from the public, from the, the you know, the, the, the from 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 democracy and 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 that made them more efficient and we've kind of like drifted back back into using the the supreme court as that kind of more efficient because less democratic kind of voting system you would however agree the courts do have a role in protecting minorities from majority abuse right i mean there must there is some yeah. role surely that's a critical element of what the supreme court will do because well, yes, majorities and, and the, can be very and, and oppressive that's right. And civil rights law is law. So um, it's, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to get the court to do anything that, I, I mean, uh, first of all, you know, the book is not a, the book is not a manifesto. It's a, it's a history. And I, I'm, I'm not. It's a romping cultural history. social history that, that has everything yeah. pop cultural to constitutional yeah. in it. It's, it's, I don't want to, <laughs> the people reading that book will be amused by a whole bunch of, of observations about the culture, about television, about media, about yeah. music, about everything in the book. Uh, yeah. uh, but I'm trying to get at the core. What, let me ask you this. If everything had not happened that way, let's say, and we had progressed to greater uh, success of women. I mean, now women are, I think, in many, many ways dominant in our society in terms of their contribution to the economy and the future of the economy. Similarly, with uh, enormous strides in African-American representation, integration, if that all happened through the democratic system, as it were, without courts, uh, what's the difference? Hold it. What, what are you saying? If we had reached the level of integration, diversity, I hate that word, but but variety of groups represented better in the society, more integrated, more more fully involved in our democracy, as as Obama would say it. Um, if that had come about without the courts, uh, if it had come about through democratic deliberation, you'd be you'd be mm-hmm. fine, right? I'd be delighted. Yeah, that would surely be pre- <laughs> well, that, that want... would be surely preferable. Yes, but what's what's the difference if you live today? What would be the difference in terms of America today. What, what 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 do you miss by having been done by the courts? What is what what is what has been taken away? I have never really looked at the at the issue that way. This mm-hmm. is not a you know it's not a book of nostalgia or or, or or anything like that. It's a book about a sort of the development of a um you know of a of a second political system that exists quite uneasily. Um, 
with the one that was inherited by the 1960s to the and 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 the conclusion I, I would say if there is one of this line of argument in the book is that that the two parties have come to be determined by which of the two political systems they they they, they favor and each of them has its advantages um so i don't think you know i don't think you're going to get very far by saying um you know to a republican well don't you wish you had you know do you surely you don't want to get rid of the progress we've made with minorities and or with a republican saying to democrat well surely you don't want to remove this sort of issue from you know the uh, consulta- consultation by the public um I, i'm just saying they have two ways of going at things they're often in sharp conflict and 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 i think that a lot of our problems come from that because we have no way to mediate between the two a constitution right. would I, there's a sense that the, the that the other constitution lacks legitimacy of of a kind. But, uh, we're serving two masters, let's say. There's a third kind of constitution hovering at the edges too, isn't there? Which is the sense that non-discrimination laws are inadequate. That that because of previous historic injustice, uh, that there has to be over. Uh, overcompensation in a way right now um, to actively, actively discriminate in favor of those who have been in the past discriminated against. I mean, there's a clear distinction between non-discrimination laws, like you can't, you have to prove that someone was discriminated, and affirmative action, for example. And affirmative action is a whole new principle entirely, right? It's not even the civil, it, 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 it takes it one step further. And that's really the struggle right now. Most people have Accepted, I think, uh, even though there are, I think, quite big costs to human to freedom in America, very basically understood. They've accepted that. Yeah, we don't want to discriminate. Do, do you think that's? I mean, from my position, that's the new battle. It is that we will adjust uh, who we hire, fire, what we do in 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 government, every policy that we do to make sure that these minorities are actually overrepresented. They're given preferences that, in fact, if they're not given preferences, you are racist. In fact, the current position is this 1964 Civil Rights Act was pointless, that it was a waste of time, that it was really just manifesting and entrenching white supremacy. And that what we do, what we need now is to junk even that uh, to to really coerce uh, and to force the the hiring of people because of their race and gender, sexual orientation gender identity, well, you know, et cetera. I you know, I, I think you're right that there there is this 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 battle going on now, but I don't think it's a new battle at all. I think that very, very early on it became clear that um that that volunteerism was not going to produce the kind of results that um that the drafters of the legislation hoped for. I mean even, you know, Lyndon Johnson's um executive orders you know, calling for, um, or his first executive order calling for, um, you know, people who contracted um, with the federal government to show that they were hiring minorities at a certain rate. And one of the ways that they could, that they could avoid excessive federal scrutiny would be to set up proactively, as we would now say, their own affirmative action program. So that was, that was pushed. Um, and and Biden that, is that, just, that uh, was just that was right after the civil rights right, law. Okay. Then you had then you had Griggs, 
1971. And Griggs, I think, is a Supreme Court decision that is a is a real watershed because what uh, th- this is a, a case called in in Nor- uh, called Griggs versus Duke Power Company. Mm-hmm. And and what the Duke Power Company had, I guess, was a um, was a set of neutral hiring exams, which the court did not dispute were quite necessary to to to. For, for determining if the if the if the hired person was a suitable employee, but neutral hiring exams were deemed violations of civil rights. So now you had a couple of principles with it that I think were really dangerous. First, it became possible to find someone guilty of, you know, prejudicial wrongdoing when he had no prejudice. Okay, but the other thing is, just on a pragmatic level. It um, it discarded um, one of the tools that has been used in societies throughout the world to to conquer racial and ethnic prejudices, which is neutral exams. You know, things where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is is is, is doing, and you have blind results, and you have, you know, and you hire that way. Um, so with Griggs in 1971, we were already embarked on actually a kind of compensatory racial discrimination by the government. And, um, and then affirmative action becomes that too. I mean, I don't want to go too far afield here and bring in too many things, but there's a, there's a, there's a further element to this, which is that courts bit by bit and decision by decision, kept widening the kind of conduct that could be considered um, discrimination. So in Griggs, as I just mentioned, it was an exam. In sort of sexism cases in the 80s and 1990s, you know, it became um, sort of a, a, a proof of a hostile environment, okay? If some guy who might leave the female workers alone and whatever and he'd been at the office you know for 30 years without complaint this guy kept a Pirelli calendar or a, you know a, a, a nudie calendar on the wall of his office and that was deemed to be a hostile environment and it was not far from there to the experience of last summer after the you know the George Floyd riots when it was quite evident that corporations across the country were scared to death to have anyone on their staffs who were not fully on board the full remedial program for against racial prejudice you know what i mean mm-hmm. i mean some of the some of the things were were just comic i mean i'll take one famous example which is of the 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 new orleans saints uh, quarterback drew brees has said, you know, um, you know, I really. He he said talked about how much he admired the people of the 1960s and 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 uh, who who fought for civil rights. And he said, but I don't. I'm not going to go down on my knee during the national anthem because the 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 the, the flag means too much for, much to me because my grandparents fought in in, in you know in, in the military. Well, I mean, he was made to apologize for that. I I mean, I don't think that. He just woke up the following morning and thought I ought to apologize for that. No, I was, I was just to give my own example, I was asked not to write that week in case I wrote something that wouldn't be entirely on board with yeah. the full. But 
look around you that summer. I mean, everybody, I mean, around me anyway, in, 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 the, in blue America where I live, embedded as you do too, um, it was a sort of mass hysteria, mass conversion. It was, had a spiritual feeling to it. And if you weren't in it, if you weren't fully in it, it wasn't about observing it. You had to actively participate or you were a racist. Um, if you were not full on, it required everybody to put something on their Instagram page or be a racist or yeah. have to put something up in their shop window, uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter, uh, or be deemed a racist. Um, when I, I was in Provincetown, every single store had to have a Black Lives Matter something or other. Every, and if you didn't, it was a bit like, you know, Vasath Havel's Greengrove. If you didn't, you were clearly evil, racist. Uh, I had some issues with the general philosophy of BLM and the general idea that we live in a white supremacist country, which I don't believe. Uh, but I had to be mighty quiet. Um, happily, I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, I lost my job over it, but I had to like, uh, socially, you're you're you regarded this. You either are with this or you're a hater. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the level of emotional blackmail that's going on now. Um, uh, and I find that just incredibly inhibiting. Um, not only inhibiting because it requires you not to tackle certain subjects that might actually make a difference, like tackling the question of uh, the education of uh, young black kids or the family structure that many black kids have to deal with, the, the many of the structural and actually practical measures which would allow and help young African-Americans to get out of where they are and to contribute equally to society and have a, have a sense of pride and, and self-esteem in that. Um, so I think we're, we're pretty much in agreement there. But what, isn't it better though now? I mean, David Frum last week was telling me, chill out about this stuff. It's a fad. It'll go away. Uh, and you, you, you know, you like, I mean, I love living in quote unquote diverse places. I mean, I love a different groups of people, different cultures, but I also like different opinions, different views. Uh, that's what a, that's what a diverse society also means. It seems to me now, but we're, isn't it better now? I mean, don't we live in a better society than we did in 1962? Oh, it's a, that's a very complicated thing. you and I. You and I, um, although, you know, I'm sure, you know, life hasn't been exactly a, a total bowl of roses for, for, for both of us, I mean, are well positioned to profit from a, from a diverse mm -hmm. society and um, to profit from more interaction and more dynamism as opposed to more stability. But not everyone is. In fact, and, most people um, aren't, right? Most people yeah, I, I like stability. Right. They like yeah. things to stay the same. Uh, yes. And, 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 you know, I think there might be sort of a, there might be just on principle something necessary to democracy about stability, just because democracy requires intelligibility. And when things are moving too fast, an ordinary person really has a hard time reading, you know, reading what's going on in society. What does all of this, this mean? There, 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 you know, 
there aren't really so many eternal verities as there used to be, or at least the, the verities that we have seem less eternal. And, um, and that makes it harder for people to govern themselves. And eventually, um, people may come to feel that people are not up to governing themselves. So I think that, that, that it's a destabilization. Dynamism is, dynamism can be destabilizing. Yes, and, it absolutely um, can. And it can and, also and, lead uh, to, to reactionism because if you push things too far, people are going to push back too far in some ways. I mean, you will create a dynamic in which people will react in ways that may not be their full selves because they'll be engaged because their world is being transformed in ways they don't fully understand and in ways they don't fully control at all. They feel it's completely outside their, their, their ability to control. Um, why can't we do better at explaining? I mean, it's very hard in mainstream media and so on that actually the resistance to mass Illegal immigration is not a function of racism. It's a function of one's own sense of one's own country, one's own sense of stability, one's own wages, uh, one's own simple, naive belief that a democratic society can indeed make a decision about who comes into its country and who doesn't. It, that's crucial to making a country meaningful. Um, and I think that's a strong argument for controlling immigration, for, for, for slowing the pace to emphasizing what I would call assimilation. I'm an old fashioned melting pot guy that believes in fact we all, as, a, as an immigrant, but I come American. I'm much more American now than I was when I got here as you could probably attest. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chris knew me when I was a, a, a little slip of a thing prancing around yes. Harvard in my bright powder blue jacket. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember the powder blue jacket, but I, I remember the Japanese sweaters. Oh yes. Yep. Yes, I did have those. Uh, that's right. Oh, I forgot about that. Those kind of bright colored yeah. 1980s uh, Japanese right. symbols on my T-shirts yeah. and things. Um, uh, where would we go with that? I just lost my train of thought going back to those old days. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I, I, the thing is, I, what I find so frustrating on the left is also what sort of, I think what Orwell found frustrating. Too. I don't, they, so many of my peers don't seem to have this, core sense of patriotism of nationhood of like this matters you know it matters that we are in this community and not in that community and there are borders that create that reality um and that our identity is fundamentally as americans not as our uh particular ethnic or identity group uh and i'm just befuddled i, I mean one of one of some friend of mine said the borders are racist and I, I the whole or the fact that my peers in England are absolutely apoplectic that we've changed some trading laws with the rest of continental <laughs> Europe as if it was the change of our entire society uh, because some people mainly working class people but also lots of middle class people just said look I'm tired of having everything in our in well not everything but key questions in our democracy dictated by another countries which is because we're not other countries and where has that gone among the elite i mean why do they no longer identify with their own country so much or has it always been the case no no i don't think it's always been this way i think it's a it's a it's a question it's a function of of elites isolation from large 
tranches of the you know of the of 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 the social order you know i think that that it used to be that 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 any town or any city was really multifunctional mm -hmm. wherever you lived mm -hmm. you'd have either depending where you were you'd have either farmers or industry you know in the middle of the social hierarchy and then you'd have a whole very diverse array of of elites there'd be a you know there'd be doctors and lawyers and a local newspaper editor and the guy who runs the factory and the guy who owns the used car lot and um and then at the the bottom you'd have a really mixed proletariat you know what i mean and but and they would be running in and out of your house and in and out of your business and up and down your street and your your children would be going to the um to the to the public school with their children who are you know the the daughter of the banker and the you know the the son of the kid on welfare son of the guy on welfare i i i think that we've got a couple of things going on there is a lot of residential segregation the invention of the automobile has made it possible for people to live in places where poor people can't reach you know uh, except for a class of of servants you know and the other thing is our cities We've, so we've had a sort of sorting, and our cities have wound up the places where the global economy happens. And so, and, and, and this is the thing that, the, the, there's a great French sociologist named Christophe Guilloui who writes about the repurposing of urban space mm -hmm. in, in France. So, but basically, the old urban working classes, you know what I mean? Whether they get too poor to live in the city, or whether they're just bought out at a at a, at a, at a you know if they own property and 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 at a good price, they leave, they go back to, you know their, the 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 small towns where they grew up, which are no longer really the small towns where they grow up. They're nowheresvilles. You know what I mean? Because um, the elites of those small towns have moved to the cities, right? The next generation well, of elites right. have left so, their hometowns it, and they're here now. And so these places outside of Paris are just, there's just not a lot of economic dynamism there. And in the fact, the people in those cities can't even afford to come to Paris because they can't afford to live anywhere. Um, in, in the case of Paris, and I'm, I'm, I'm leaning on the work of this sociologist, yeah. Gil Wee, again, you know, I mean, either the, the rents are too high in the private housing uh, and the, uh, the, the public housing is all occupied by immigrants. So there's really no way back in. They're locked out of the global economy. Now to you and me who are who are who play a role however modest in the global economy. Mm -mm, a lot of these changes don't necessarily appear as disadvantages. You know what I mean? No. But I mean the, my, the my sense is, was we, the people in blue America, they don't tend to meet people who are outcasts from the global economy. And this so is a this is it's a function of both right and left over the last time because the the right's endorsement of global capitalism of 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 of, of completely unfettered trade, and of course the internet, which can outsource work even more efficiently than the automobile could. I mean, which which whole large numbers of your own employees are actually in India or in 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 other parts of of the world earning much lower wages. Um, uh, and of course, the left, which sort of has begun to sort of celebrate non-whiteness as some kind of moral quality. Just, I mean, it, it's a sort of reverse racism in which, in which the color of your skin 
is what indicates your moral virtue or not. Um, uh, and in which uh, um, anti-whiteness, if you want to call it, is almost a sacred, uh, sacred pillar of that, that, that mindset. Am I, am, I being, am I pushing that a little bit well, too far? But it feels that way to me. I hope, I, hope it's not, I hope it's not as bad as that. But, um, Pretty close, uh, I have to say. But you know, I, I, I do think I, I do think that there's a um, I do think that there's a, 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 a sort of a, a segregation between the people who belong to the dynamic, global, cosmopolitan, diverse, um, exciting, open all night economy, and the people who belong to the economy where there's just two big box stores at the end of a lonely highway, and that's it. How much do you think the collapse of, of religion, you know, actual vibrant communal Christianity, churches, uh, parishes, uh, that that avenue for meaning has disappeared for most people, including those who even call themselves evangelicals? And also, the other issue is that if the elite has left the heartland, who is going to represent the heartland uh, in a way that can go toe to toe with the elite? Have the skill set, have the have the intellectual depth, have the legal cojones and expertise. Because what you found, I think, if I look at the last four years, for example, of Trump right. and Republican Party, is that uh, you know it's 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 terrible. I mean, like the, however bad the sixteen nineteen project was, the seventeen seventy six thing they put out is just it's just it's not even close to any sort of uh, scholarly quality. Um, it is right. it's embarrassing. I like the seventeen seventy six project. I like the idea. I like the, the idea of of, of 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 restoring you know a sense that the that the country has some special traditions. That it's um, that it's not about its injustices and 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 yeah. And well, I agree with that, thing. but the execution yeah. is just execrable. It's just embarrassing um, well, to have the leaders of the right uh, be this awful. Um, uh, well, is is you know, excruciating? Is it not? I mean, I mean, uh, to have I, the representative of conservative being Donald J. Trump. I mean, at some at some point, it's 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 a joke. Well, as we say, this is a very complicated system, and it was it was an interesting thing to you know it throughout the Trump administration, there was always the belief that it this couldn't actually be it. This is what's not this isn't what's really going on. Like so, behind the scenes, there must actually be some people who are really knowledgeable about the complexity about of this system. And are really working to, uh, you know, figure things out. But ap apparently there were not. You know what I mean? <laughs> apparently, and, uh, it was quite clear from and, the get go uh, that there was so not. But that, that my point I is, there's no depth, there's no bench, there's no intellectual bench on the right anymore. It's kind of deteriorated to a point of, you know, a lot of people who are either very crude ideologues um, or just opportunists and bullshit artists. There, I'm being. Uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm provoking you. You're not one of those people, no, no, but no, there no. are so few no, of no, you, Chris. Obviously, there are smart people on the on on the right, um, but they're not the 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 
you know, and I don't like using right and left. Let's say okay. Republicans and Democrats. Okay? okay. The problem is that um, the problem is that in the same way that you know we have two Americas, we have this America of the global economy and the you know the dynamism and the all night uh, you know restaurants and things like that. That's the the Democratic Party is the party of that America, and the party of the America left behind is the um, is the Republican Party, and they have they have a a, um, a commensurate shortage in um, sort of resources of expertise. There maybe you could compare them in a way to the European labor parties when the European labor parties were first getting started in the late nineteenth century. They didn't have a lot of people with economics degrees and that kind of that kind of stuff. But it's very interesting. They they the all those labor parties, all those working men's movements in in um in the in in Europe, they all went out and said, well, you know, we got to get some. We got and and there was a great, I would say, particularly in England, and I don't you know, um, but particularly in England, there was a sense of like, okay, if we want to 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 run this country, we're going to have to start reading. You know, now I think to do that, it really does help to feel like you belong to something really meaningful and important. Uh, and 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 so I think the role of Christianity was very. I think Christianity was still very important in the working men's movements of you know a hundred a hundred years ago. It's tougher to muster that improving spirit when you think you just sort of like inhabit a blighted landscape and you're just kind of you know you're the highlight of your day is sitting in your basement watching tv and you know it's it's harder to do yeah i can see that um which which how do we actually revive uh, a kind of i mean it, it, the the better example for me and maybe we can cut some of those errors and ours <laughs> in britain we have a etonian Prime Minister with a highly educated cabinet, uh, who, who unlike who, who who are actually attempting to do what you're doing, uh, to what you what you're proposing, which is integrate some of these movements into the mainstream party. The Tory party has always observed these things on its fringes, and its instinct is to co-opt, bring in, tame, and exploit. If you're going to be uh, brutal politically, yeah. the Republican Party doesn't seem to be in that position. It is so alienated, it feels, from the mainstream ruling elites, um, and that it it was captured by this this con man uh, for four years, and it has ended. And let's be frank about this: ended with this mass delusion that the entire election was rigged, uh, and. And that, in fact, every election, according to Donald Trump, including the ones he's won, is rigged. Now, this is this is a big problem in entering national politics. If you are a party, the majority of whose members do not believe that national elections are fair, are deliberately rigged by outside forces, lefties, liberals, and all the rest of it, and still do, even to this day, uh, how on earth can that become a viable political party or movement as opposed to a kind of anarchic nihilist protest? Well, you know, people get really riled up 
during election campaigns uh, in 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 the in the weeks leading up to um, election day, and by election day, I think partisans are totally crazy. What we had this year, where a, one candidate whips these pe people who are in that state into maintaining that state for for several weeks. Um, we've never had it before. We may not have it again. It may be a very special thing. I do not believe that when people calm down, they're going to be, um, you know, fired up. They're going to be convinced that this particular election was stolen. I think that I think that 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 it's going to be quite possible to to sort of like move ahead on on a, on a calmer basis. Okay, and because Trump do, was Trump was whipping this level of hysteria up every day that he was in office. I mean, it wasn't just the election campaign; it was a constant uh, insurrection, sort of fevered pitch for four years. Um, it was exhausting. And of course, the left then reciprocated in turn, in, 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 which is why we got this this insanely aggressive rhetoric uh, around race and gender and sexuality and so on. Well, it's it's different. It's never these things are never really symmetrical. You know no, what I mean? No. Each each side has got its own yeah. peculiarities, and and um, yeah, uh, and and this this thing with Trump is a real. It is a real problem, and. Um, it's it's actually a kind of a, a a confusing problem because you know now as we try to move forward the people who weren't with Trump are tempted to cast the problem as having been not Trump's sort of like delusional or cynical incitement but actually the idea of backing Trump anyone's backing Trump in the first place do you know what i mean so you know, while I'm quite comfortable um, with a, you know, with a, with a Senate trial of, of, of Donald Trump, I'm less comfortable with the idea of, you know, sort of like people freezing out Trump supporters from their book contracts and from and, you know, and taking disciplinary action against people who in the Senate merely for having agreed with him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do think there is a, a rather uh, broad brush being, being used at this point uh, with some rather very nebulous terms. Uh, and I, I'm extremely concerned that, 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 the, that the response will be, will be an overreaction. And, well, that, and, and, and that my, my point is that if, if, if as, James, as, as, as John Brennan says, it's a sort of insurgency situation, uh, which I think is obviously an extreme, but let's take that, just, just, just take that as an analogy. The response of any counterinsurgency is not to alienate all the people who might be sympathetic to the insurgency. It is actually to appeal to those people to separate them from the crazy fringe. Uh, that's the goal. That's how you defeat crazies, is you appeal to the people to whom they appeal, but you do so in a more credible and inclusive and positive way way. And the danger of demonizing all of them is that, in fact, you make it worse. And not only that, you bring the arms of government into this, uh, which can be terrifying for a lot of people. I mean, if, if the enemy is, as Biden puts it, white supremacy, and if white supremacy is now defined as towing up to work on time, uh, or being believing in individualism or objectivity, we're, we're, the nebulousness of this term is so 
enormous now um, that any war on it is going to be incredibly uh, dangerous, it seems to me, and, and the vagueness of the way it's defined itself. We have to separate that crowd that sacked the Capitol from most Trump voters. We have to make sure that we reject them, but we don't show contempt for 74 million people who voted for him. Um, That's right. And so, I mean, you have a, a, the, the, the sorting out is really, it's not that different from the arguments uh, last summer about, you know, when, you know, when people were calling Black Lives Matter uh, protests, mostly peaceful protests, when, <laughs> you know, there were fires in the background on, the, on, on, on television. The fact is most, most every thing that goes on, even a lot of very violent things, are mostly peaceful. I mean, I think that most of the people who th showed up at the um, at the Capitol that day, you know, there there are two things going on. On the one hand, there there are some corners of what went on at the Capitol which I am convinced are more horrifying than we're even even going to know. You know what I mean? I think that there were maybe a dozen nodes there at the Capitol, including the places where the people were killed that were really like something out of a war zone, you know. Um, but I don't think that the, I don't know how many people there were. It's kind of curious that we don't know how many people were, were, were present there, but let's say some tens of thousands. I don't think the vast majority of them, I do not think were signed up for a coup, you know. No, they uh, were signed up to reverse. The I mean, they, they, I would, if it were just a demonstration to me, one thing, if it was timed specifically to prevent a specific moment in the, in the constitutional process, yeah. that is, that creates a very different dynamic. I mean, if they were okay, just. Now, now we're talking about, we're, now we're talking about, about, you know, the Trump, Trump's liability for this as opposed to the. Oh, well, he, I know, think he, he, he bears a great deal yeah. of it. Looking to the yeah. future, when I look around, I'm like, well, who would, who could lead? a sort of um, uh, a Republican Party that is more, that is multiracial. I think we saw in the last election, even though it was at the margins, that, that, uh, that a conservative can appeal and will appeal to plenty of Latinos and to more African-Americans than currently are appealed to. There are certain issues that will, could do that. Um, I think a focus on more economic populism. I think uh, a focus on also on, <clears throat> on, color blindness and, and, and getting past race instead of getting completely mired in it would be a pretty, but I don't see anyone out there. I mean, I, I think of someone like Liz Cheney, for example, now she's fucked because she, she, she took what I think is a very brave and principled position, although it's an obvious position. The one that, the person that, that, that pops up to me who's played the last six months pretty well is Tom Cotton. Uh, mm -hmm. He's kind of, he hasn't, thrown in with the insurrectionists at all. Uh, and yet he's, he's, he is extremely, you know, hardline in many, many ways. I, I, I'm very nervous of him because I think he, the one part of the Trump coalition he doesn't get is getting out of wars. I mean, he seems to be an unreconstructed yeah. interventionist neoconservative um, and also a, a slightly chilling authoritarian in that respect. Um, so I, I worry that we'll get, go back to, uh, you know, the war on terror if we're not careful with him. Mm -hmm. But, um, who else is there? Josh Hawley seems to have um, slightly uh, stepped on his own landmine, as it were. Uh, uh, Rubio is just, ugh, I mean, please. Uh, it, 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 I don't think, he, I, don't, I can't see him appealing. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, 
who do, who who would you think are among the people you have most uh, in the political area that well, have most it's promise? It's funny you mentioned. It's funny you mentioned the um, those three because those three senators are the subject of my upcoming New Republic yes uh, article. Um, they are, you know, uh, and and I think that they are to the extent that the Republican Party is retooling itself to match its actual electorate. I mean, I think that those are the people who are closest to to uh, you know a Republican party that you could call working class, and they are in different ways. You know, I mean, um, you know, Tom Cotton is from Yell County, Arkansas, which is not really a, 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 a sort of like a global economy hub, and he's um, you know he's you know, he deals with farmers a lot and, um, uh, I, I, you know, and, 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 and people in modestly situated people. I think he's, um, he's interesting. Holly actually, uh, I, I would have said was one of the, I mean, Holly is a guy who was educated at Stanford and at Yale. I would have said he's a, he's a sort of a smart version of a sort of like a, a, a working class politician or let's say a, a, a well-educated version of one um he's very um where did he come from what's his his origins he's from missouri he's um he's very up on um he's very up on tech he he knows an awful lot about the ins and outs of you know search engines and algorithms and that's what his the book that was um that was that was banned um well, dropped was withdrawn yes is, is which he's is going to be published, published with, yes in the spring is is about and finally rubio um you know i think maybe i'm more impressed with him than you are he i mean i think that he's probably done the most to sort of bring forward a program that sort of you know helps working people doing things like cutting parts of the you know the getting rid of parts of the corporate tax cut in order to to put the money into sort of like child tax credits and and that kind of thing. Isn't there an opening so if the Democrats are going all the way down the line on race to actually go all the way on, down the line on class for the Republicans? I don't know if the, you need to go all the way down in the, 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 the line on class. I mean, the Democrats could get themselves into a position, um, you know, even by 2022, you know, where the, the, you know, they'll be like the Republicans were in this election, you know, they, they can, where the Republicans can run as not them, you know? Right. Um, so. You think the House will go Republican next time? Well, of course, we don't know, but it, oh, it has a good chance. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so distant from, from, from sort of like real electoral projection that I, you know, your, your guess is as good as mine. I, yeah, but, um, I have no, I, I, anybody predicting things these days in, in, in politics is a little bit of a, uh, an idiot, it seems to me. Um, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've we've known each other now for since we we were we were at God help us. We were both at Harvard together, although yeah. you were a senior and I was just a young grad student. I just came in, but we were roughly the same age, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, those yeah. were those are good times. They they sure were. Maybe we can talk about them in a future podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> there are many anecdotes which we will not go into, but which were highly amusing at the time. Uh, That's right. Certainly to me. Um, yeah. Christopher is one of the most fun people to hang out with. Uh, he's, he certainly ended up more conservative than I expected at the time. Are you are you surprised by your evolution, or do you think you haven't really? You roughly where you were then. Have you changed? Roughly, roughly yeah. where I was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the the difference is not. I didn't. I'm not sure I got more uh, uh, conservative. The 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 differences I had. I was probably a pretty conservative person at the time. I just didn't really care about politics at all. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. were more into literature, right? I mean, you were more into yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you ever think about going back to writing writing about those kind of things? I mean, when Hitchens and just before nine eleven was like, I'm so fucking tired of politics. I want to write about books. I want to write about literature. I want to yeah. write about. Uh, I want to change my direction. Um, are, you, are you tempted that way? Fiction, even? I'd love, to, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear what you said. What 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 Christopher said about to you about that? That's um, that's. I mean, I, he was really a, a an especially good literary critic i think i do too um, or or i should say literary essayist is is more what i would call him um but i but i didn't know i did i have never known i never knew him to have any inclination towards writing fiction no he didn't he didn't that was not what yeah. he was doing it was almost yeah. all literary uh reviewing and uh literary analysis which he was superb yeah. about he seemed yeah, to read everything much I, yes absolutely i i would you know that's that's you're a better writer than Hitch, I think. That's a terrible. You're a better writer than Hitch, I think. But but, the, but the, don't oh, don't right. don't have me on it. I mean, I always found Christopher's sort of prose style to be just a little too showoffy. Uh, I'm surprised that such a discipline of or, such a disciple of Orwell would have turned out this this recherche sort of incredibly yeah, elaborate. So, and yet, when he really when he connected, oh, he God, really yes. was beautiful. Yeah, uh, he would be. Yeah. He, I, I to have witnessed him tackle both Trump and Kamala Harris would have been just uh, so delightful because uh, he would it's have. A shame. Well, it's a shame we we no longer have him around. No, we just have to channel, channel the spirit. Um, yeah, great to have you, Christopher. Thanks so much Likewise. for being here and great. being my friend. And uh, keep writing, keep thinking. And if you have, if if you guys, you dishheads have not read The Age of Entitlement, even if you might find it. Thoroughly disagreeable. You might disagree with it. It is such, I know, such a bracing and challenging narrative of the last sixty years. It's a sort of popular history of the last sixty years, which, which bobs and weaves through countless different aspects of American life, and I found disconcertingly persuasive. <laughs> it made me very uncomfortable by the end of it, because of what I found so insightful in it, which is, which is a challenge to most of us. So, so if you're tired of the pablum that most books and writing is these days um uh check out check out christopher and check out his upcoming piece in the new republic my old haunting ground uh see you next week bye <laughs>